Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from the letter of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13 and continuing through verse 15. Let's give attention to the reading of God's holy word. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. If we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Our Father in Heaven, we believe those words that the grass withers and the flower fades, but Your Word It remains forever. We ask for that forever word of your scriptures now to be brought to light through the power of your Holy Spirit. And that upon the wings of that Spirit, we ask that that word would fly, as it were, into our hearts. And that it would transform us. And that the likeness of Christ would be more manifested in us. And the joy of sweet communion with you would be deeper than it ever has. Believe, Father, that that is your prayer even in this passage that's before us. For you to know us and for us to know you and for there to be sweet and abiding communion. There's nothing more important than knowing you. So, Lord, we ask in this moment that you would indeed clear away the things in our lives that would keep us from hearing, believing, being changed by, and knowing your love. And that you would make a straight path to our hearts through this word to bring about the coming of your kingdom in us, and through us by the power of Christ. See us before you. Meet us where we are. Take us to where we should be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a few years ago I was listening to an interview by one of my uh, pastoral heroes, Eugene Peterson. Many of you know him, maybe more popularly, by the paraphrase translation of the scripture known as The Message. That He is also very well known for many other books where he has written on pastoral ministry, on the Christian life and what pastoral ministry has to do with shepherding and caring for the Christian life and what does it mean for the Christian to walk in the life that is Christ. These are themes that permeate his writing. In the course of this particular interview, the 
interviewer was asking him, what do you really think the essence of the Christian life is? And he answered in kind of the typical enigmatic Eugene Peterson way. He answered in a way that would make you wonder where you wouldn't necessarily perceive the power and the wisdom of what he said immediately. It's something I've continued to chew on years. He said the Christian life is essentially the process of learning how to pray. He said the Christian life is essentially the process of learning how to pray. Now again, that might seem at first blush to be awfully narrow and truncated, but that's not, of course, Peterson's intention at all. He wants you to steep in that for a minute. And of course, part of what he intends from that is that the Christian life is one that must be lived in communion with the Lord. It's a life that requires utter dependence upon the Lord. It's a life that cannot be lived in any way apart from the Lord. In other words, it's a life of prayer. Wouldn't it be sweet to walk intimate with the Lord all the time? You can think back probably right now even in the pew as we discuss this passage together about a time in your life where you're experiencing, as I referenced this weekend in, in an email, a, a bit of a springtime of the soul, where closeness with the Lord and life with the Lord was just sweet and it was precious and, and it didn't seem like the normal ways in which that got quenched or squelched within you were happening and there was a sense of endurance and strength and hope and peace that pervaded life. And your mind, rather than having to constantly work hard at getting it to meditate and think on the things of the Lord, seemed like it was just as you lived, it was just present. It's wonderful when we walk through seasons like that. Wouldn't you love to experience that more in your life? Would you love for those seasons to stay longer? Would you love for that communion to be deeper still? Prayer. Prayer, I believe, is a secret. David says in Psalm 145 that when we call upon the Lord, the Lord is near to His people. As we call upon Him in truth, He is near to His people. And yet, let's be honest this morning. It doesn't always feel that way, does it? In fact, prayer can be the sweetest evidences of communion with the Lord, or it can be one of the frightening experiences of how distant we often feel from the Lord. You've probably prayed in such a way as to think, I'm not really praying. He's not really there. There's not a real closeness. Prayer can sometimes feel like that awkward conversation that you have at a wedding reception with someone you barely know. 
You're trying to make small talk, hoping to strike upon a subject matter that will spark the conversation and keep it going. But as you fish for topic after topic, nothing seems to stick and both of you stand there awkwardly shuffling your feet. Does your prayer life ever feel like that? You ever get to the end of a prayer and think to yourself, you and me, we just don't have a lot in common, do we? Started a prayer group with a group of young men at First Prayers in Jackson, Mississippi, about eight or nine years ago. It was a 615 prayer meeting on the back porch of one of my friends there in the Bellhaven neighborhood. It's hard to get people to come to a 615 prayer meeting, by the way. You learn these things in ministry over time. There were three or four of us there. One young man who had admitted that he had never had much of a prayer life. He'd prayed, but there'd never been much life in it. So we got finished praying that morning. He said what I think many of us felt. He said, boy, it's going to take a while to knock the rust off, isn't it? It's like working a muscle that we don't use very often when we pray, at least when we really pray. And we have the sneaky suspicion that in order to get this muscle ready to commune with the Lord, we're going to have to do this more, which means feel this awkwardness more. (laughs) It's hard work praying. That's why Donald Bloch actually wrote a book called The Struggle of Prayer. How aptly titled is a book on prayer as the struggle of prayer because that's how it all feels for every single one of us. What I love about the book is something Bloch says right at the very beginning of the text. He says it's a constant struggle for the Christian to take hold of the ever outstretched arm of God towards him. I love the way that he said it because it makes it clear that prayer and the problem of prayer is not on God's side, it's on ours. We have trouble continuing to reach out to the constant reaching out arm of God in our direction. What would it be like to have a prayer life where we learned the habit of holding on to that hand, that arm that reaches out to us all the time, ever stretched out, where he walks with me, And he talks with me along life's narrow way. Oswald Chambers says in the initial stages of prayer, it's continual effort. (laughs) But if you stay at it, there's a law of love that takes over. And if you abide in that, you begin to do it almost unconsciously. The fact of the matter is, many of us rarely get to that place. It always feels like we have the training wheels on our prayer life. We've never actually learned how to balance this dynamic of prayer. I sometimes pray that my prayers would become to the Lord as natural as breathing. That it would be like the automatic reflex of my nervous system that right now is pumping my lungs, giving me the breath to be able to even speak. And I'm doing very little thinking about it. 
Oh, that the communion with the Lord that could ebb and flow such as that, the give and take of the natural, the conversation that happens because it's a spillover of the communion that's already present. I think that metaphor of breathing is a good one. And I want to think through what it means to breathe in the life that gives forth prayer and breathe out the prayer that leads into a deeper life. I want to inhale and I want to exhale with you today. And I want us to think about our breathing. What do we take in in order to give out? How does John here, in 1 John 5, along with his, his purpose of writing this letter and his purpose in writing his gospel, teach us that the, oftentimes the reason we are breathless and we find ourselves gasping for prayer is because we've never taken in the breath of the life from which prayer is produced. We start talking way too soon. I want to look at the inhale, the life that leads to prayer. John tells us at the end of his gospel, not the letter of 1 John, at the end of his gospel, he tells us why he wrote the gospel. He says this in John 20 verse 31, these things I have written so that you may believe That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. I love the fact that John refers to the gospel and his writing of the gospel and our believing in the gospel, not in the way that we oftentimes say it, which is being saved from your sins. That's true. But he refers to the gospel and its attending blessing as life. In the name of the Son of God. Jesus has come to give us life and to give us life abundantly. 1 John 5.13 says this, the passage that's before us. I write these things to you. Notice how similar they are, this wording. To you who believe. You've already believed. In the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have life. And here's what John is saying. We forget that we have life. We doubt whether we have life. Or we try to live life on things that aren't life. I write this letter so that you know that you have life. You know that you have life. He, in a sense, wants us to remember where our life is located. And to drill into that life. What he refers to here as eternal life. What he refers to in the gospel as life in the name of Jesus Christ. Same thing, differently spoken. Eternal life is not the life that you'll one day live when Jesus returns in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, it includes that. But it's the life that you presently have in Christ by the power of His Spirit. That is the life that's been given to you. The very resurrection life of Jesus. Now, John tells us there are ways in which that life gets stirred up within us. 
Where we remember to live on that life rather than on the life that is no life. The sources of life that often the world tries to tantalize us with. He says the way in which we live on the life that is found in the name of Christ, the life that is the eternal life, the resurrection life that dwells within us, is we have to be a hearing people before we can be a speaking people. He says, I write these things to you. In other words, I want you to hear something first. I want you to hear something first. I want you to read something first. I want you to meditate on something first. I want you to turn over and ponder something in your mind and your heart first. Before you have anything to trust in and believe in or to live in, let's hear. Let's hear. Faith comes by hearing Hearing by the word of God. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 10 verse 17. That's true in salvation, but it's also true in sanctification. You see, the way we get into the Christian life by believing in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is also the way we get on in the Christian life by continuing to hear. By continuing to believe. By continuing to live in. By continuing to know. In fact, if you begin to think about it, it's a movement from truth, us, to transformation, to treasure. See, I love the way John actually writes it here in 1 John 5, 13. He says, I want you to know that you have eternal life. Knowledge comes after sharing of the truth. It comes after belief. It comes after the life that's in the name of Christ. It's often after you actually begin to practice the life of Jesus where you begin to truly know and treasure who Jesus is. I know a man who thought he was losing his life. And in thinking that he was losing his life, which he wasn't, later realized that he'd gotten his life back in a way that he was very surprised by. And in doing so, he began to look at his wife different. He began to look at his children different. He began to look at his job different. He began to cherish the small blessings, the treasures of his life in a way that he never had before. Now, he knew the truth of them. And he had trusted in the reality of those blessings. And yet he had not yet experienced the transformation. And he almost had to lose his life to see them. But in seeing them, they became treasures. Do you see, when we begin to see Jesus and what it is that Jesus has done for us, and we begin to stir up the realities of who Jesus is in our life, dwelling within us now, we begin to see with new eyes. In fact, after we hear and trust and transformation begins to take place as we walk and talk with Jesus and the intimacy is forged, we begin to now treasure things to such a degree that we have something to express. See, it's only after God has said something that we have something to say. It's only when we inhale the life that is Christ that we learn to exhale the prayer that's produced by that life. John tells us about this exile 
this, excuse me, this exhale in verse 14. He says, and this is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything, ask anything according to His will, He hears us. There's the exhale, the asking. He loves to hear from us. Now, I think the key word here is confidence. This is the confidence we have towards Him. Confidence with, with God Himself. This hearing, believing, living and knowing, this union and communion with Christ begins to bubble into us into a confidence that's able to express ourselves to the Lord. In fact, I believe John is saying, here's how we ought to approach God as we come to Him in prayer. One of the problems in even our thinking and study and reflection on prayer is we think mostly about the words rather than the approach. How is it that we should approach God before we should begin to speak to Him? What's the condition of our heart where sweet communion is born? How is it that we really begin to know the intimacy of the Lord so that we can speak to Him as if He is someone that we really know? That's the point of this word confidence. It's the Greek word parousia. It carries the idea of boldness. Knowing that you're in a place where you belong. That I should be in the throne of grace. I am a child of God. I have confidence to enter into the presence of the Lord. But it also has this slight connotation of freedom. The ability to speak freely. We have confidence to come to the Lord and not do so necessarily with the verbiage that's not really ours. It's just a made-up prayer word. I used to joke about one of my dear mentors in the faith because when he would pray, he always prayed in the King James. The rest of the time, he spoke in normal southern draw. But when he prayed, he prayed in King James. Now, why? Probably because in part he was formed the language of the Bible, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. In that sense, sometimes we have a prayer language, and I don't mean that in a charismatic way, where we are more times than not performing for God in prayer than we are communing with God in prayer. We're trying to pray a good prayer. Something that God would be pleased with. Rather than speaking a free prayer to a father who just loves to hear from his children. You see, this free speech, this confident approach to the Lord is the guileless, unashamed, self-forgetful kind of honest speech of a child who comes before a loving father or mother and knows that they are meant to be in his or her presence and knows that no matter what they say, as foolish as it may be, they will be loved and not condemned. It's meaningful in the real fighting speech of a friend where you can trust them with whatever it is that you would say and that they will listen and pace with you in it. And in speaking back to you, we'll simply confirm and seek to strengthen and encourage your heart and your soul. That's what we mean by confident prayer. Approaching the Lord as if we have, we have 
passport with him, like we ought to be here. I don't mean to go into the presence of the Lord like you own the place. You don't own the place. It's not cavalier, bold, give peace of my mind. Oh no, it's, it's, it's innocent. It's humble. But it's free and it's childlike. It's one that knows that he's not there to beat you up. But he's there to listen and to draw you into his lap. That's a very different posture in which we pray when we begin to realize that in the moments we begin to speak, God is linear. He's as, he's as close to us as the indwelling of the Spirit. How can we nurture such real and intimate and true prayer unless we first listened about with what God says with regards to his love for us? You see, in the section before that we looked at last week, as many of you were here in 1 John 6 through 12, we, we found out that God, through the symbol of baptism, calls us sons and daughters of the King. We found out through blood that He's died on the cross for our sins and reconciled us to God. We found out through the, the, the power of the Spirit that we are now adopted and can now cry out, as Romans 8 tells us, the words, Abba, Father. You know the word Abba? It's an intimate one. One that genuinely means Daddy. We can cry out to the God of the universe as if He's our Daddy. We can go to Him with that kind of intimacy. And it not be disrespectful, but it be personal. When we begin to experience the life that comes in that reality, we begin to have a prayer that we feel very confident to speak. When we inhale the richness of those promises, we can exhale a depth of prayer in communion with the Lord. This is why so often... We come to the Lord in prayer and we begin speaking too fast. We begin to just say things. Now he listens because he's our father. But we know the difference in praying a prayer where we're full of ourselves and praying a prayer where we're full of him. Do you know the difference? That's what we're talking about. And you can pray the other. He's very patient with us. He loves you. This is a father with a child. But it's not nearly as life-giving and sustaining. When we come with the harried, full of ourselves prayers. Without the humble, full of God prayers that has the contriteness of confidence and childlike honesty without guile. When we approach God with the freedom of speech, here's the beautiful thing. We begin to be able to speak to God with the surrendering of our will. You see, that's where John actually goes in this passage. Listen to how he says it. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I love the way John says that. If we ask anything, <laughs> it's almost as if he knows how we pray. We rattle on for a long time. And maybe something in there would be according to his will. 
maybe on the off chance that you spoke something that would be according to God's will today in your prayers. Most of the time, it's all about what we want to will. Lord, this is my will. I'd love for you to oblige it. You know, whenever we approach someone primarily with our will intention and they become for us kind of an errand boy or girl, it doesn't tend to foster sweet intimacy. You know, it's the person who always calls you to borrow your truck and they never call you any other time. John says that when we pray according to the will of God, he hears us. It's like what sometimes we have to do in the midst of our prayers as we're, we're spouting off about all of our requests to pause in the midst of them and say something like, I wonder if God has anything to say about what I'm saying. Maybe that's a question to write down and to consider about your prayers. Does God have anything to say about what I'm saying? You'd be surprised. He often does. Well, let's put ourselves through a little bit of a breathing exercise. You ever had difficult circumstances? Yes. Circumstances where you don't really know what to do. And you find yourself complaining in the midst of prayer. You find yourself worried in the midst of it, anxious. And then sometimes by God's kindness of the Spirit He gives to you, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, popping into your mind... Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Whatever is going through your life right then providentially, God has given it to you. And he's given it to you for a purpose that is so sweet and so rich that if you knew its purposes, you would be absolutely bold over for it. One day you will know his purposes, so go ahead and give him thanks for it. Tell me that won't change the way you're praying about that thing. Whatever that difficult circumstance. Well, I can't even remember what that difficult circumstance was. Because I'm sitting in the middle of it. I'm learning the revelation of interrelationship with the petitions of my request. And what happened in the midst of it was not the changing of the situation. But the changing of me. In the midst of the situation. What happened was God showed up. In the middle of my prayer. Through the truth of his promises. Or you're afraid. You've lost your job. Your savings is getting eaten up. You don't know what Christmas is going to look like this year. And in the midst of praying. Fretfully. Matthew 6.33 comes to mind. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things, they'll be added unto you. Don't worry about them. Seek first His kingdom. And we don't mean that in a negligent way. We don't mean that in an irresponsible way. Go to the job interview. Find every means that you can to provide within the realm of righteousness. But trust God. All these things will be added unto you. Struggling with temptation. Praying over the Lord with regards to it. 
feeling its power come over you so strongly you don't think you can say no. And by God's grace, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 pops into your mind. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you will bear. But with the temptation, He will provide for you a way of escape. All of a sudden, that temptation didn't feel quite so strong. Why? Because you're praying according to the will of God. You see, this is what it's like to commune with the Lord. You have things you want to say to Him. But more importantly, He has things He wants to say to you. When He says it to you in the midst of a prayer, there's something of a receptacle that takes place in our hearts where you can almost have what I would call the felt sense of the presence of God in the midst of that prayer. And in that moment, you're knowing the sweetness of intimate communion. You see, the Christian life is just learning how to pray. Now, when we seek to pray according to the will of God, it doesn't just merely mean that we pray God's scriptures in relationship to our request, but it means also that we seek the will of God in prayer. We seek the will of God in prayer. And when we seek the will of God in prayer, we don't mean to say we're trying to divine what it is that the Lord wants us to do about well, all the many decisions in our lives. Like the big ones. Who to marry. What to major in in college. What job to take. What city to move to. What house to buy or if to buy. Isn't it remarkable that that's where most of our energy and mental space is, is spent on these decisions that are so earth moving to us. And the Bible says very little about them. It gives us some general parameters about marriage. Make sure they're saved. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that narrows it a little. We are often uncomfortable with the radical freedom that God gives us. Remarkable freedom. To choose within an amazing range of occupations and professions and people and places. So much so that we want to go to him and we say, can you narrow it a little bit? Like, you know, be a barista at Starbucks. You know, that, you know, marry her. She's the one. You know, that's, we would love if something like that happened, which means we're really uncomfortable with the freedom that the Lord has given to us. You see, God is less interested in the particular life decisions that you make. He's more interested in the whole life transformation of your heart in Christ so that you'll make the right decision. It's what a parent wants for a child. You know, as a child gets older, it should be the parent's plan to say less to them about what they need to do. It would be the hope that the child has been changed in more and more circumstances through Christ and the power of His Word that they now know what they need to do. At the end of the day, we really don't want people telling us what to do. We want to become the people that are changed so that we know wisely what to do. And here's the beauty of what God tells us in James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask of Him. He gives generously 
Seek the will of God in prayer through wisdom. And and what you'll often find as you seek the will of God in wisdom is that he begins to inhabit your heart so deeply and so intimately that you begin to make wise decisions intuitively. Where you used to rush in, where you ought not, you now learn to pace more slowly. Where you used to avoid at all costs, now you're willing to broach. You're learning the wisdom of keeping in step with the Spirit. You're learning to pay attention to the movement of the Lord as He grants greater measures of discernment. As you trust yourself to Him, as you listen deeply and express faithfully. As you inhale the life and you exhale the prayer. He says this would happen, another breathing exercise, Romans 12, 1 through 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. By the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is good, true, and acceptable. You see, sometimes, don't you find this? You're angry about something or you're upset about something. It's welling up within you and you think, this is definitely what needs to happen. Or you're worried or you're anxious about something and this is definitely what... And you should never act in those moments. That's a bad moment to act. But as soon as you bring the will of God into that moment and seek for discernment, you'll find that you begin to calm and you'll begin to experience peace. And here's the thing that often comes by God, a clarity of direction. Where now you begin to see things that you didn't see previously because you're walking by the light and the power of His Word and the power of the Spirit. You see, when we pray according to the will of God using the scriptures and we pray seeking the will of God in wisdom, we, we get to a place, and here's where the Lord really wants us, we get to a place where we're willing to surrender our wills to the will of God, whatever that is in providence. That's the beautiful thing that begins to happen. I've been praying now for three decades. I'm 36 years old. I was converted sometime around six years of age. I've had many ups and downs in my prayer life. Everything from practical prayerlessness to praying without ceasing. And most of the time somewhere bouncing in between those two. What I've noticed that if you take time to pray according to the will of God as he's revealed it in the scripture. And then pray according to the will of God for the wisdom of discernment. He'll lead you to a place where you're willing to surrender your will to the will of God in whatever it is that takes place in providence. You see, the process of praying the will of God in Scripture begins to deconstruct our tendency to try to impose our will on God. Or somehow or another to pray with a little bit more earnestness that His will might be bent to me. But instead, as we begin to pray in this way, our soul becomes, as Psalm 132 says, calmed and quieted within us. We become, as it were, like a weaned child. It's because, as John Stott said, every true prayer is on some variation of the words, thy will be done. Every true prayer is ultimately offering yourself up to the Lord as a living sacrifice. 
A place where you're willing to receive from Him whatever it is that He wants to give you. Because this is all about Christ anyway, right? In The Ideal Husband, Oscar Wilde, through the voice of one of his characters, says, when God wants to really punish us, He begins to answer our prayers. We laugh because we don't know how to pray. Right? We're praying for the job and God's, God's about our trust in not having a job and learning to rely upon Him. We're, we're praying for the, for the healing from the diagnosis and, and God is interested in us trusting in Him, the great physician. And if He needs to keep us sicker longer, He's happy to do that. Because His ends are not our ends. His desires are not our desires. He's after much bigger things. You see, we're often like Israel clamoring for Saul as our king. <laughs> we found this really great guy. He looks a lot like the nations. I think we need him as a king. You really don't need him. Oh, no, no, we need him. I promise you he's not our guy. Okay, I'll give him to you. You see, sometimes God answers our prayers. And some, in his answering of our prayers, here's what's so kind. When he answers our foolish prayers, it's because he often wants to show us something and take us to a place that he couldn't get us there any other way. That's not to say that they're limiting God in any way. But I know for me, I'm pretty stubborn. And he often tries gentle measures first to teach me the things that he wants to show me. But he, he'll turn up the heat if he needs to. He loves me that much. He loves me that much. You see, there's a comfort in praying, Thy will be done. For God will either give us what it is that we pray for, or He's going to give us something far better than we could have ever imagined. It's always a good prayer. But it's different if you just pray it like a mantra. Or you pray it from a heart that means it. And a lot of times we have to work our way in the soul with God to get to a place where we can honestly say, Thy will be done. In fact, I think those commentaries, or a sense of a commentary could be written about this, those words, Thy will be done. When you look at verse 15... Because verse 15 tells us that if we, we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. You've already got them. It's, you don't even have to wait on them. You already have them. Now that seems absolutely bizarre. The language is, we have already obtained those things which we've asked of him if we've asked him according to his will. He's already answered the prayer. How could that be so? It can be so because every prayer is already answered in Christ. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, Paul tells us, praise be to God who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
in Christ Jesus. You see, the something better from the unanswered prayer is not the something, it's the someone. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is actually the answer to the heart cry of every single one of us. And the process of praying is not the process of getting what it is that we pray for. It's getting the God to whom we pray. And realize that once we do in Christ, the prayer is answered. You see, Christ is the answer. In fact, Christ is the answer that answers every prayer. Because the end of your life and the eternity of which we have been promised is not an eternity eternity where there are some things that we have come to acquire and grasp. It's that we will have the someone who will be the full object of our love and beauty. And we will look at him face to face and all of our prayers will be answered. So let's pray. And let's ask for things. And let's meet Christ there. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we need more of you. And so our request is simple. Give us yourself. And in so doing, answer our every prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.